Hello, I'm Taylor Romans. And I'm Matthew Burrett. And this is Hard Beeswax, Experiences in Waldorf Education. If you are enjoying listening to these episodes, please consider helping us continue this work by making contributions to the show. You can do this through our website and our Patreon account by making one-time donations, or if you could, consider making monthly contributions, which goes to support our work here at the Hard Beeswax Podcast Studio. If a financial contribution is not in the cards, please consider sharing our episodes with friends, family, or anyone else you think might enjoy what we are doing here at the podcast. We thank you all for listening. This week on Hard Beeswax, it is my absolute pleasure to talk to my former Waldorf class teacher, John Metrick. We are individuals who are a part of this global educational movement. And we want to be clear that we are only speaking from our own experiences and from our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. Well, thank you so much, John Metric, for being here. My dream, my dream uh, guest. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's both surprising and flattering to be here. <laughs> yeah, for, for those of you who have been with us since the beginning, you heard when Matthew shared his story how important, you know, his class teacher was. For many of us who've gone through Waldorf schools ourselves, you know, the relationship with your class teacher, in many ways they've they've seen you on your on your hardest days and, you know, seen seen your worst artwork and also been there to celebrate your achievements and it's a really profound and special relationship and you know especially with how how ancient matthew is you know (laughs) 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 this is a a running joke between us no matthew is not ancient he's very young and chipper he hasn't been been a top, tap to play Crispin yet in the Shepherd's Play, so yeah, he's got yeah. he's got many good years ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just concerned if he's ancient, what that makes me. Profoundly wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess my first question, John. It's very still very awkward to call you John, but I will. Um, uh, you know, I I I lost touch with you and just where have you been where have i been well uh, several places um after i left green meadow i worked for uh, a C- uh, community-based organization in new york city ah. uh, in new york and i was uh starting after school programs in public schools in the bronx under grants from the after school corporation uh, in total, we started programs at five schools. Nice. And then after a, well, the, the story is Jake was spending a year in India. Jake, my younger son, was spending a year studying in India. And I thought, uh, well, I definitely want to visit him. And uh, an old, a long-time interest in China. Mm. Uh, led me to tack on after I saw him some time in China. And that time was so enjoyable. When I got back to the States, I looked online to see if there was a way for me to go back. Hmm. 
and they were looking for English teachers. And I applied and uh, landed in China for the next 21 years. Wow. So 21 years, does that mean that you um, started to speak the language and s such? I did. I do. Uh, okay. Not well, but enthusiastically. Yeah. Um, the Chinese are, are very appreciative, as, as I think in every country, when you partake in their culture, including their language. Mm -hmm. um, and so they were happy to... Uh, go through whatever earaches I caused uh, <laughs> in my efforts to communicate well. Yeah. And and so what kind of school were you in in China? Were you at one institution during your time there, or were you in different schools throughout those 21 years? Actually, several different ones. I began at what they call an English uh, training institute, um, where... We had some on-site classes, and we'd also go out to schools and teach in the schools. Mm. And that was just English as a second language. Uh -huh. uh, primary years is what I taught. Yeah. Um, I did that for a year and then moved to, that was in Guangzhou, I moved to Xi'an, uh, the city of the Terracotta Warriors. Mm. Mm. And was the director of the international division for a new international school, the Xi'an High Tech International School. Wow. And yeah, I was there for three years uh, and then spent a year teaching English as a second language in what in China is a middle school, in America is high school. Mm. And then I started my own training center, which, oh, wow. which I called English Through the Arts. And... Uh, it was sort of my trying to blend what I knew about learning language uh, with Waldorf education. Mm. So we didn't use textbooks. We made our own books. Uh, and again, it was English through the arts. Yeah. So the idea of using the arts as a medium for teaching language. Wow. And it was actually quite successful. Uh, had over 100 students at one point from... Uh, three years old to adults. Hmm. Um, and then I, uh, let's see, after that, I did an in-service teacher training program for the Tibetan teachers of English in uh, Tibetan high school. Wow. Um, wow. And that was, that was really quite wonderful. Unfortunately, uh, because of politics, it only lasted for one year, and then the program was shut down. Mm. Um, so after that, I became the vice principal at a kindergarten in Sichuan uh, that was using the Reggio Emilia approach. Uh -huh. uh, and from there, um, became the principal of another kindergarten in Zhengzhou that was also using Reggio Emilia. Uh, and let's see, what else did I do? I then worked for a very large kindergarten uh, in Wuxi, uh, 800 students. Wow. When I say large. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And there I did a mixture of teaching some classes, training teachers, both the foreign teachers and the domestic teachers, actually for a while doing training for the entire staff, um, curriculum development, 
and so on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of like, like the designated hitter. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting, you know, just all of these different roles of, of approaching education, both in the classroom, from the teacher's perspective, of really almost circling the entire, you know, trajectory or, or maybe a periphery of a school, right? And, and, and seeing it in all these different ways, that's, that's amazing. Well, it was very, very valuable experiences. Yeah. And I've only been back for... A little over two weeks. Wow. How was how it being back, and, and what brought you back? Uh, well, I, had been, I hadn't been back for a visit in too long. Um, so I had been planning for a visit, and then the timing got accelerated because uh, I was informed my visa would no longer be renewed. Oh. And that I had to leave. Oh. Uh, so I left. Uh, my first stop has been with my sister in Anchorage, Alaska, uh-huh. and uh, just trying to make the plans for the next step. Yeah. yeah. At some point, at least a visit back east. Yeah. Uh, but one step at a time right now. Right. And being back is, is interesting. <laughs> I, I imagine the the cultural differences, you know, kind of are from, from the big to the very small, right. That it's, it's all these little differences and, and, um, surroundings, behavior, practices, food, (laughs) you know, the list goes on. Yeah. It's a little bit of culture shock in the opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So going back in time, then uh, I knew this was coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, going back in time, you know, we we really like to hear how people stumbled into Waldorf education, right? Sure. And so, could you speak a little bit, you know, about how you found Waldorf education, and then what from you finding out about it? How did then that journey lead you toward being a class teacher? Okay. Um, Kind of an interesting story, I guess. Everybody's probably is. When I was a student in college, uh, one of my one of my friends was Dana Marks, um, who had gone to Waldorf School. Another friend, uh, Mark Shaw, was. I don't know how he learned about Rudolf Steiner, but he was reading Steiner, and we talk about it. So that was my first introduction. Um, several years later, I was teaching on, no, let me see, let me go back. Uh, I was living in Vancouver, British Columbia. And, uh, my older son, Jeb, was ready for kindergarten. And I had sort of remembered something about Waldorf schools. So we took a look and there was the North Vancouver Waldorf School. So we sent him there. We're very, very happy. Learned a little bit about Waldorf education. Uh, But we were only there for a year. And then I was teaching on uh, an Indian reserve off the coast of British Columbia, on an island off the coast of British Columbia. And uh, let's see, we were having a discussion. I was a special education teacher. and We were having a discussion at the school about learning to read and so on. And I said, well, you know, Waldorf education had a very interesting approach to that. Um, 
I'll see what I can find out. And I gave Alan Howard, who was uh, a luminary in Waldorf education in British Columbia and probably beyond, I gave him a call. And as I was listening to him um, and trying to think how this would set into how this would fit into the community, um, I was also thinking, "Gee, this sounds this sounds just right on." <laughs> so. I began to, well, no, it wasn't even then. We left there and we went to Edmonton, Alberta. Mm-hmm. And in some sort of a newsletter or what's going on, I read an article that they were trying to start a Waldorf school within the public school system in Edmonton. Mm. And there was a contact number, uh, Don Cruz, and I gave him a call and I said, gee, I'm ready to help you get it started. And he said, well, we've already been open for five years. <laughs> well, I've got children who are going to join you. Um, and so they did. It was a, an interesting experiment. It was, the, at that time, the only tuition-free Waldorf school, I believe, in the English-speaking world. And again, within the public school system. Um, they had uh, hired Franklin Payne who was, was quite well-known, in uh, particularly in California circles of Waldorf education, uh, as a teacher and as a, just helping nurture teacher-trainer and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and together with Franklin and Don Cruz, uh, I became part of the board of directors of the, see if I can remember the name, the Northern Alberta Waldorf School Association, hmm. something like that. And uh, Franklin Kane started doing some classes for people who were interested in more about Waldorf education, thinking of becoming Waldorf teachers. Um, and so I worked with Franklin, uh, learning everything I possibly could in reading. And that was my entry. Wow. Wow. That- and so then did you kind of through those classes, because you were already teaching, right? And so you already had so many of the things, classroom experience, working with children. And so then was it was it a natural segue then to kind of dive into Waldorf pedagogy? Well, in some ways, yes. I mean, at that time I was working uh, as a consultant to... Uh, various Native communities in Western Canada um, as they were making efforts to improve education for their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can't forget that for, I think, a total of seven summers, I attended the Rudolf Steiner Institute. Oh, um, wow. First in Pennsylvania, then in Maine. I don't know where they might be now. And took classes with many people there on Waldorf pedagogy and many other aspects of Steiner, Steiner's works. And uh, after a couple of years in the, the sort of work exchange program in the kitchen, um, began leading the older children's program. Hmm. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of experience there. And again, learning from just some absolutely brilliant teachers and and other individuals, an extraordinary experience. So much so that the interest in 
uh, Alberta and Edmonton in Waldorf education and Steiner was growing. So I organized what we call the Rudolf Steiner seminars in Edmonton um, for uh, two years and then went to Green Meadow. Wow. Wow. And so yeah. when you went to Green Meadow, was that your first time being a class teacher? Uh, yeah, in Waldorf education, yes. Yeah. So so yeah. Matthew's class was your very first class. Matthew's class was my very first class. Wow. I was learning as Matthew was learning. <laughs> like you said at the beginning about uh, seeing students at their best, their worst on their best days. <laughs> It was vice versa. <laughs> yes. I, I, we were joking. My, my class teacher was the same where it was her first time going through with, and I was, I was at the Austin Waldorf school and I always okay. laughed cause she, we, we were so energetic. We really needed to jump rope a lot. And I'm pretty sure she had an injured shoulder from about second grade through sixth grade. That, that just the, 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 the sheer quantity. I just remember her having this kind of just struggling, stiff shoulder pain all the way through. Well, I'm glad I, you didn't have to do that because I only learned how to jump rope a couple of years ago. <laughs> so, so what was that like? You know, we've we've talked to. Um, uh, a gentleman who now is is training teachers who had his background as a class teacher, but you know the class teacher journey in Waldorf schools is so particular, and for me as a high school teacher, so intimidating, right? Of of this knowledge that every year you are going to be bringing a year's worth of content and material and drawings to these kids. Can you speak a little bit to you know maybe how you prepared yourself going yeah. into that first? Yeah, well, I mean, just to say, as a student, I had no idea that you were just a few days ahead of us. It definitely did not show <laughs> at all. Uh -oh. <laughs> Draw back the curtains. <laughs> <laughs> definitely drawing back the curtains. So uh, I was very fortunate, really very fortunate, to be at Green Meadow, um, where there were some extraordinary teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't could make a long list of them, Eugene Schwartz and uh, Jane Wilson, John Wilson, uh, David Sloan. I mean, the list just goes on. We love David Sloan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fantastic resources. Um, and so there were always people to turn to mm -hmm. with questions. Uh, you know, the faculty meetings were just so rich in, in uh, being a resource for, for learning. Um, and then lots of self-study. Uh, again, the summers at the Rudolf Steiner Institute uh, were also invaluable in helping. I remember uh, finishing second grade. Uh, Georg Locher from England was doing, happened to be doing a class that summer on third grade. Wow. Um, so that was a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. So, yeah, as I think every teacher, uh, as they go up the years with their class, you know, they're learning all the time, uh, deepening their understanding of, of Waldorf education, but also of the students in their class and also of themselves. 
When one one thing that I remember very fondly about you was just how wonderful you told stories. I think oh, you. you you really uh, I but you also I remember you told stories um I guess now with my adult um sensibilities uh I guess were a little bit unusual than the normal progression. I remember we like you told us about Hiawatha and you you focused a little bit more on the Native American stories. Can you was that something you chose or you know how did the how did how did you choose the stories that you told our class? Well, first was was being consistent with the 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 literature, the flow of 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 relative education, mm-hmm. um, and the indications for each year. Uh, because I had spent time with several native different communities, um, I think perhaps I learned whatever storytelling technique I had, I perhaps I learned from the storytellers in those cultures where storytelling was a really a main vehicle for teaching. Uh. Um, and uh, I think it's I think it's really important uh, for everyone to be exposed to as many different cultures as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so when those stories seem suitable, I would include them. Yeah. Mm. Um, and lots were suitable. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the beautiful things of it's very easy to take maybe the indications and recommendations at face value, but when you actually really live into and think about the impulse behind those recommendations... Yeah. then it's amazing how many other stories or theme themes you can bring that are developmentally appropriate, right? For those different ages. Yeah. Very true. I mean, now in China, there are many Waldorf schools. Yes. Um, and more opening, I think, probably every year. And there, you know, again, you have a, another culture that in many of the schools, I think all of the schools, are drawing on mm-hmm. their own culture stories because there's a, there's a deeper connection for those yeah. children who, again, live within that culture. Um, but there's also the consistency with the indications. Yeah. Mm. So could you speak a little bit about, kind of from a teacher's perspective, some of the transitions going from grade to grade, you know, first grade is, is kind of pedagogically the end of this age of imitation, right? And and it's kind of, I remember the first thing I taught when I came to the Santa Fe Waldorf School was sp- elementary Spanish. And I remember I had to, I was so confused because anytime I said anything, the first graders would just parrot it right back to me. And I had to say, no, no, not, not that. <laughs> Don't take that. Sorry. And they'd go, sorry. <laughs> and, and there, there really is this, you know, first grade is kind of this cusp from that imitation into the more kind of seven to 14 phase. If you could speak a little bit to what that experience was like of, you know, especially in the younger grades, that transition from grade to grade and maybe some seminal transitionary times you remember? Yeah, I think uh, it's been a while since I've thought about that. Um, Certainly third grade uh, was a a whole opening of 
of a new world for the children in many ways. Yeah. Um, a little bit of a crossing of a Rubicon there. Yeah. Uh, in terms of them becoming uh, a little bit more aware in a different way of how they exist in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of, although it doesn't really happen until later, but a kind of leaving behind certain aspects of the dreaminess mm-hmm. of early childhood. Yeah. Um, and, and becoming aware of the world around them in different ways. Yeah. Um, I think the other place that I remember there being a really marked difference would have been sixth grade. Oh, sixth grade. Where, yeah. <laughs> where there was, uh, and I think maybe the word, word, uh, the word that comes to mind first is critical, where the students were now able to evaluate um, both me, both themselves, both what they were doing in a different way. Mm. Um, and that certainly just became more and more. <laughs> well, I, rem- uh, I remember, John, you teaching us about the Roman Empire and about how Caesar would use shift c- ciphers to, to encode the messages between the armies. And I remember one day, Simon and I were passing notes to each other, and we had used a shift cipher to, <laughs> to encode everything. And then you got mad at us because you caught us passing notes, but we actually kind of wanted you to catch us because then you had the habit of, of always reading the notes out loud because you thought that was really quite, you know, embarrassing for us. So, but we wanted you to, <laughs> you, we wanted you to read this note. <laughs> So we, we had we had really planned it out because we had we had encoded these messages and and then you know we were waiting for you to catch it and we kind of like very obviously passed the node and you came over in a huff and and took the node and we, we were just waiting for this moment and you looked at it and it was all in, in, in shift cipher it was all encoded and you just didn't know what to do. <laughs> Uh, it was a lesson I learned. <laughs> my apologies to anybody who I embarrassed. <laughs> no, no, it was classic. It was really, it was really good. That's great. I, I'm curious. What was, what was the spirit of your class like? You know, it. If, I mean, for so many teachers, for for some teachers, I think it's now a very rare few who have done the cycle. You know, five, six times. Right. It is a lifetime's work to do that, and I think. Um, but what was the spirit of, of this class like for you? And were they rambunctious? Were they inquisitive? Were they sleepy? Were you they... can be honest. <laughs> Lively is the first word that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and uh, they were, uh, well, there were many children of faculty members in the class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which influences, I think, influences the community of the class. Totally. As well as, uh, because Green Meadow is part of a larger community, and several of the students, even if their parents weren't faculty members, were part of that larger community. Yeah. Uh, it was a, a, it had its own personality. Yeah. Um, Maybe people felt more at home there than... Another student might. Yeah. And uh, Matthew, don't take offense in this, 
But socially, it was a challenging class. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, and part of it had to do with that. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, teachers, I think all teachers, look for signs that the efforts that they made um, bore fruit. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it was attending uh, your high school graduation. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chris Friedman spoke. Yeah. And uh, feel myself getting very emotional here. Yeah. But he spoke about how, uh, about the social aspect of the class, your trip on the boat and the, the uh, I guess, well, the captain or somebody on the boat saying something about he'd never seen such a, a group so socially bound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was just uh, so pleasing, so so self-confirming to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think to a large extent, of course, it's the, the work that you as classmates did together mm-hmm. that uh, made that come together. Yeah. yeah. It, it is so fascinating because so many of those seeds are planted with the class teacher that don't come to fruition until, well, and a lot of times not even in high school. That's the joke. High school teachers, it's like we, you know. Yeah, you know, we work, we work, we work, and then we send them off, and somewhere on a college campus, somewhere they turn twenty-one and blossom, and yeah, <laughs> we're back in the classroom. Very true. That's that's why, in part, uh, this connection with you again, Matthew, is is so meaningful. Yeah, uh, you know that you yourself became a Waldorf teacher, mm-hmm. uh, and and all that I know that that involves is yeah. just wonderful. Yeah. It is, I feel like I'm not saying a lot of words here, but it is really deeply meaningful to re to reestablish this connection with you. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And, and a class- I left China, uh, I met with two of the students from the training center that I had started. Um, one of whom started classes with me when she was 12 wow. and she just turned 30. Oh. Um, and we've been, we've remained in contact since then. Uh-huh. Uh, the the other student um, who I was speaking to at the same time, they eventually, uh, well, they still are a couple having met at the training center. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think that one of the strange things about having been in a Waldorf community is that at some point you graduate and you're nudged out the door. At some time you at some point your class graduates and and if you don't take another class then you're nudged on. And I I I remember having this very distinct and, and such an and a uh, kind of a classic 18, 19 year old moment of coming back to the school to visit and having this realization of like, whoa, I am so not special, <laughs> you know. And and when I when I was in it and when I was here, I I felt so held and yeah. so loved and like I knew if I walked through campus, I knew all of these people. And then in the blink of an eye, when you're no longer there every day, that can feel like it's missing. But yeah. you know, 
these connections right here. I mean, I, I got married in September of 2019, which was a good time to get married because a few months later, then no one was doing anything. But um, yes. but my my class teacher flew in from from Australia or no, New Zealand. I believe Nancy's in New Zealand, but f- flew from across the world to be there. And Manifest. and, you know, there were, I think. 16 18 of the 24 of us were there i mean it was incredible it was so it was so powerful because those those people who you go through this thing with it is it is in my opinion undeniably karmic Mm -hmm. right the teacher you find yourself with the classmate who you just butt heads with day after day after day and some point you look at each other and say hey i love you (laughs) you know and um it's I, I think that to be to be a class teacher and to go through that with the students, I mean, it um, it's a powerful thing and well, it's a powerful gift too. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, it, it. I mean, John, you very much were my family away from my other family. <laughs> you know, uh, I. I remember. <clears throat> I don't know if you did, but I remember. Uh, let me see. I'm trying to picture the classroom. Definitely fifth grade. Mm. Occasionally, somebody would come up to me to show me something and say, Mom, I mean, Dad, I'm Mr. Metric. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. So, yeah, the, the bond is, is very deep. I imagine, Matthew, you must be still in touch with many of your classmates. Um, a few. I, I had uh, Josh Sloan swing by Santa Fe on a road trip. He he lives in Australia now. Um, really? Yeah. He I I actually for as close as we were, I I haven't maintained very close connections. Um, I mean, I know of you know people and where they're generally at, but um, yeah, I yeah. It's been, uh, being in China has made it a little more difficult. Um, occasionally I could connect to Facebook. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so Laura Wilson and a few other people I've connected with there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also LinkedIn. Uh, mm-hmm. Although LinkedIn in the last couple of years in China has uh been very very limited in what you can actually do mm-hmm. so, uh, unfortunately i have not kept up with everyone the way i would have liked to yeah I, I, and i hope that many of you are watching this and yeah. will take this as an advantage to get in touch with me yeah <laughs> for sure well i just i mean i don't know how really i can say all that i really want to say but i just want to say that well, basically, I I love you, and I want to say thank you for holding me all those years as a as a young kid. The love has returned, absolutely. Uh, you were and and always are, will be a part of my life. It's said the Chinese say that uh, once you are someone's teacher, you're their teacher for their entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, it's very true, uh, maybe not in a literal sense, but, uh, you know, we absorb from our teachers more than we realize. And uh, it surfaces in unexpected ways throughout our life. So I'm, I'm 
honored to have been your teacher <laughs> and, and uh, honored to still be your teacher. Yeah, for sure. And learning from you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also think that there's a quality in a class teacher of just consistent, steady presence, right? And, mm. you know, no matter how many times, you know, I tried to, you know, get up and leave the classroom when I wanted to leave the classroom, my teacher would tell me that, no, Taylor, that remains not okay. And I think for so for so many people, there are very few places where that consistent, loving boundaries are held. And I think that for a student who has the same teacher day in and day out, the the way that your nervous system can let go when you walk into a space where you know that every time that that there's consistency, it's ama- it's an amazing and powerful powerful tool. And yes. um you know, and I think that that was something when I started learning a little bit about pedagogically what, you know, was going on in the grades, right? Of kind of this 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 loving and warm authority figure who who is consistent and you know i'm i'm curious for you having gone through and been a class teacher what do you carry with you from that you know as you have gone out and done all these different things and been in all these different roles in education what are some of the the kernels from that experience that you continued to draw on as you went out into the world and especially went into a place that is as culturally different from the United States as China is? Well, one of the things I think every teacher, I think it's possibly the most important thing is learning how to observe. And when you have basically the same group of children for eight years, uh, you really do learn how to observe. Uh, our, uh, this whole idea of of staying with a group of children for consecutive years is so important, um, not just for the teacher, but I remember, I believe it was Rachel DeMaster in second grade coming up to me one day and saying, is it true that in public schools you have a different teacher each year? Uh, and you could just see the disbelief, hear the disbelief in her voice. Mm-hmm. So I think that observation, really trying to see as deeply into people, children, um, as they develop, is is possibly the greatest thing that I've taken with me. And that has helped me wherever I've been. Uh, whatever situation I've been in. Um, you know, they, every behavior, they say every behavior is communication. And uh, to observe behavior and understand it, often different in, in different cultural uh, situations. Um, having had that experience again of observing consistently the same group over an extended period of time is so valuable. Yeah. I think I answered your question. You absolutely did. (laughs) 
maybe um you know just because we're we're approaching our the end of our time yeah. with you do you have any uh particularly funny or memorable <laughs> matthew memories that you could share with us <laughs> well one of the most enjoyable moments for me <laughs> uh it was the year of the Norse gods, where uh, one morning I came into the classroom, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> and somebody placed a whoopee cushion on my chair. And I, I noticed it pretty much right away and proceeded to do the main lesson, occasionally walking over to my desk, just trying to sit down and then stand up. And every time, everybody in the class, <laughs> until they realized that I knew it was there, <laughs> I'm sitting down on it. <laughs> yeah. Was that you? That comes to mind. <laughs> oh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it was great fun. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, I, I said the class was lively. Fun is another word that comes to mind. Yeah. You were a very, very enjoyable group. Yeah. What were what were some of the most unexpected challenges you faced as a class teacher? Well, well again, uh, I remember seeing uh, at one of the first parents' meetings, class meetings, um, that socially this was one of the most challenging groups I ever, ever had. Mm-hmm. And I had taught in difficult situations before. Um, but uh, the social dynamics were such that this was a, a real was a real surprise mm-hmm. and a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really the, the first one that comes to mind. Uh, and then just keeping up with with everybody's brilliance yeah. was always a challenge. Yeah. Uh, and and seeing seeing glimmers of uh, you know I I in talking to parents uh, or uh, have been fortunate enough to be invited to some early childhood conferences in China to speak about um, the early years the last few years that's been where I've been working the most. Um, with parents, occasionally I would give everybody a seed and uh, at some point ask them to look at the seed and, and know that that seed, if you plant it, uh, you give it what it needs, the, you know, the right amount of water, the right temperature, the right exposure to sunlight, and so on. You know that that seed is going to sprout and grow into something. Mm-hmm that that seed is just a potential uh, for apples, for roses, for who knows what. And that as it grows, that needing to observe it, does it look like it needs more water? Does it look like I need to move it a little bit out of the sunlight and so on? That, you know, as multiply that uh, to a much higher power. And of course, that's what every child is. Uh, a potential and nurturing that potential is what our task is whether we're parents whether we're teachers grandparents whatever to 
understand each child's individual needs mm -hmm. and try and meet those in every way that you can, that that potential has the potential of becoming a reality. Mm. Um, and the glimpses of that potential that you get as time goes on. Mm. Mm. So, Yeah. That's beautiful. I like the image of the oh. seed and the idea that when you are looking at a seed, you have no sense of what is coming, right? Well, you might if you got it from a package of seeds. But <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, and that to to uh, to water a, a grass seed as if it were a cactus would not no. <laughs> would not go well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, John, any any last thoughts you want to leave us with today? Uh, last thoughts? No, just uh, Matthew. Such appreciation for you for the comments that you made hmm. uh, in your blog and, and for, you know, making this happen. Oh, yeah. Uh, is just so wonderful. Oh, thank you. So wonderful. Yeah. And I hope we have a chance that I can, we can talk on a, a bit more personal level. Absolutely. From your experiences as a water <laughs> teacher and life in general. Yes, of course. Uh, a chance to meet your family. Yeah. Yeah, my, well, I have my mother and my sister um, yeah. send their regards and... Um, Please pass mine on to them. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, my my wife um, is Taiwanese-American and um, my son my son speaks better Mandarin than I do. And... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. This is the start of of a, you know, a deepening connection as adults. So yes, it definitely is. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Thank you, John. Thank it's you. been a real pleasure. This concludes another episode of Hard Beeswax. Thanks for listening. For episodes and more, visit our website at hardbeeswax.transistor.fm. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, or you can always email us at hardbeeswax at gmail.com. Hard Beeswax would not be possible without the expertise and time of Andy Smith, our producer and sound whisperer, who has been our hype man from the beginning. And lastly, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in with us and sharing in the absolute magic brought by our guests. Your support means the world to us. You have our utmost gratitude. <laughs>